Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabadie.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Jenny Hocking to Books, Books, Books to discuss her book, The Palace Letters, subtitled The Queen, The Governor-General and The Plot to Dismiss Gough Whitlam, which was published in 2020 by Scribe. Jenny is Emeritus Professor at Monash University and a Distinguished Whitlam Fellow at the Whitlam Institute of Western Sydney. She has written eight books, including a number of political biographies, for example, on Lionel Murphy and Frank Hardy. In 2008 and 2012, she published a highly acclaimed two-part biography of Gough Whitlam. In 2015, following 10 years of research, Jenny published a seminal account of the dismissal of the Whitlam government, the dismissal dossier, Everything You Were Never Meant to Know about November 1975. She updated that in 2016 and again in 2017. In 2016, Jenny commenced what can only be described as David and Goliath proceedings in the Federal Court of Australia against National Archives, seeking access to the palace letters, the correspondence between the then Governor-General Sir John Kerr and Buckingham Palace during his tenure as Governor-General from 1974 to 1977. I think it's fair to say National Archives fought tooth and nail to resist producing those documents, and we're going to hear more about that today. Jenny, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thanks very much for having me, Nicole. Jenny, I've given a hint of it. Perhaps you could start by explaining to our listeners what are the Palace Letters and when and how did you first become aware of their existence? The Palace Letters are the letters between Sir John Kerr, the Governor-General, and the Queen uh, during the period of Kerr's time in office as Governor-General. So they start not long after Kerr began uh, his tenure as Governor-General. They they begin in August 1974 and they go right through um, which is a little bit after his, his commencement as, as Governor-General, and they go right through to uh, the end of that tenure in late 1978. Um, there was never, never any secret about the fact that Kerr was writing to the palace. Governors-General always did write to the palace, but normally they might have written uh, between once a year and perhaps four times a year. What we have in this extraordinary cache of letters held in our National Archives are over 200 letters, uh, letters between Kerr and the Queen, about 116, I think, from Kerr and slightly less uh, back from the palace. So they're a very unusual set of letters. Um, We first knew about them really when they came uh, at that period of over 30 years when they could have been opened if they were recognised as what's called Commonwealth Records in the archives, and that was in 2005. That's 30 years from the date of the dismissal, 1975. Yes, that's when the letters are relating specifically to that period of the dismissal round about, you know, October, November 1975, one would have expected to become available from that date onwards, 2005 onwards. Um, I put in, um, I asked to see uh, 
the letters uh, which were available on the uh, uh, visible on the catalogue, and I asked, was it possible to look at them, and was told that they were not open, were not available to be seen, and simply that they were personal. So no possibility of seeing them, and they remained closed. And something that was really interesting that you explain in some detail in the book is that what you discovered was that, there, and this became of some significance for your case, was that there were two sets of palace letters. If I've understood it correctly, there were the originals, the double A files, which were deposited by David Smith at, at Sir John Kerr's behest in 1978. And then there was a copy file called the M file, which was made for Sir John Kerr and was deposited by a member of his family in 2004. And in relation to that copy file, there should have been open access from 2005. What was the significance for you and for your request for access of finding the copy file? Well, look, it has to be said that I just simply never imagined there was any way of looking at these letters. I mean, you simply cannot open royal materials, as so many other researchers will tell you. It's an impenetrable brick wall. And so when they were closed to me as the formal original copies of these letters, I, I thought, well, there's nothing I could do about it. But I spent an enormous amount of time researching Sir John Kerr's papers for the Whitlam biography firstly and then later for my book, The Dismissal Dossier. And I realised these were just absolutely critical documents in our history. They're fascinating, extraordinarily important. And here they were locked away in our own national archives and I couldn't see them. And to my astonishment, as I searched through Kerr's papers, looking at file after file that I would meticulously open, I suddenly realised there was a file containing copies of all of the palace letters. And not only was this there in the archives, and this was something no one else knew at this point, um, but it appeared to be open and it was available at least to apply for through the catalogue because it said these are what you do when you see something on the catalogue that hasn't yet been um, uh, uh, through all of its provisions to be open, but it is in fact available, you make an application to open it. So I immediately put in an application to open it thinking, oh, I might just be able to actually open the palace letters by opening the copies of the palace letters. But what was critical about this was that letters or, or materials that are deemed to be personal are held under different conditions. They're held under what's called an instrument of deposit. And this instrument of deposit said they should have been opened after 30 years. It was more than 30 years. And so suddenly... I was struck by a possibility that the copies of the letters might be open for me where the originals were not. To my great disappointment, the archives very quickly wrote back to me and said, uh, no, these in fact are not open and not only are they not open, but we're retrospectively removing them from the catalogue. So it was clear that the archives was actually very much involved in making sure that these really important historical documents between the Queen and Governor-General at the time of the dismissal of the government were not in any way going to be available to the Australian public. Jenny, you discovered something very interesting in your research. You discovered that um, for a period in 1980, Sir John Kerr was keeping a journal. And in that journal, there was some information about these palace letters that really piqued your curiosity. What was that? What did you find in, those, in that 1980 journal? Yes, this, the journal was one of the really important documents I found in Kerr's papers. And I, I think piecing all this together, as I do in the book, The Palace Letters, is it shows how deep archival research is really like a mosaic 
uh, pursuit. You take little bits from here and there and you build up a picture and sometimes the picture overall is far greater than each of those small pieces. What was fascinating about the journal and a lot of other material I found there was that it provided evidence of what was in the palace letters because Kerr wanted those letters to be released. He felt they would support his decision to dismiss the government and, of course, he felt that they would show that he was in regular communication with the palace about the direction he was moving in, as indeed the letters do. So he felt that would also show that the palace was not unaware and was not unhappy with the path he was moving down during 1975. So he actually cites from some of the letters, uh, some of the critical letters in that journal, and that gave me an idea of what was in the letters, and that in turn then contributed to our legal argument that the letters were in no way personal. They were in fact discussing matters to do with the removal, possible removal of the government from office. A critical part in that journal, and all of this I should say became part of our exhibits, our big court documents, our evidence that went up to the federal court initially and ultimately to the high court. But a critical part of that journal was that he describes a, a meeting he had with Prince Charles in September 1975, so before supplies even blocked in the Senate, which happened a month later. And in that discussion with Charles, he writes that he indicated to Prince Charles that if he was considering dismissing the government if supply was blocked, that he, Kerr, was concerned Whitlam might seek his recall from office. And he records that Prince Charles said to him um, some concern that you shouldn't have to be uh, uh, recalled from office and the Queen should not have to take that advice from the Prime Minister when you are considering dismissing the government. Now, what was critical about that is that it showed, if that letter does in fact exist, and it does, that... Uh, the palace was aware of the possibility of the dismissal of the government from September 1975. It's a critical discussion in Kerr's journal and, of course, that's why sections of the journal became part of the evidence book that we put up to the federal court. And so what the journal referred to the conversation between Prince Charles and Sir John Kerr, but it also makes clear, the journal does, doesn't it, that um, Prince Charles told um, the Queen's private secretary, secretary, Sir Martin Charteris, about this conversation that he'd had with Kerr. That's right. It, 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 uh, Kerr records in his journal that this came uh, from Prince Charles straight back to the Queen's private secretary, Sir Martin Charteris, and that Sir Martin Charteris in turn, on behalf of the Queen, wrote back to Kerr about that conversation and about what the Queen would do if advised by Whitlam as he never was, but if he was ever advised by Whitlam to recall the Governor-General, um, if Whitlam had uncovered that Kerr was in fact considering in secret and without warning removing the government from office. Um, so it was a critical description in the journal. It was one that showed both the non-personal nature of the letters, and we have to remember that the archives refused access on the basis that the letters were personal and therefore did not come under the Archives Act, we put together a very strong, we always thought, case largely based on material I'd found in Kerr's archives. So it was a very unusual um, uh, uh, a situation of seeing my archival work in a lot of areas, a lot of letters I'd found, the journal from Kerr. I found extracts from some of the palace letters that I identified as extracts from some of the palace letters, about seven of them. All of these things, we argued, showed that the letters were not personal were Commonwealth records and ought to be released for the Australian public to view them. Just before we get to the um, federal court proceedings, I just want to take you through what happened before you got to that stage. So in July of 2011, 
you requested that National Archives gives you give you access to the copy file of the letters, not the originals, the copy. And what was the response from archives? They responded uh, very quickly to me in relation to the copy file that uh, they were not available for access. They claimed um, that there was a special condition placed over those copies that said they were not to be made available um, and effectively that they were under the Queen's embargo and they then withdrew them from the catalogue from what had previously been stated as being open. So although I had sought access uh, to the originals by asking the archives for them when I first started looking through the materials very early on, uh, there was no way of pursuing that. There was now no way also of pursuing the copies um, because the only way to challenge a description of them as personal is effectively to take a federal court action. And clearly that's untenable. It was not something I even contemplated. And uh, at that stage anyway, I simply pushed them aside and continued to look through the papers uh, in Kerr's archives as best I could. And you said that uh, you write in your book that both as a historian and as an Australian, this refusal by archives to give you access to this copy file was a personal affront and a national humiliation. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Yes, look, I, I felt very strongly about the denial of access uh, for the simple reason that these, uh, I, I could see from the other material in Kerr's papers just how significant letters between the Governor-General and the Queen at the time of an unprecedented dismissal of a government would be. So clearly they're absolutely vital historical documents and yet we, and therefore our history, was being denied access to them. And you have to put this also in the context of our understanding of the dismissal of the Whitlam government. The history of that dismissal has been e extremely clouded, difficult to discern, and it has come about and been understood in a really piecemeal fashion because a huge amount of information was kept from us. What we now understand as the as the real collusion of others with Kerr in his actions, the role of Sir Anthony Mason, a High Court judge, for instance, uh, the role of others in, in, Kerr's, in Kerr's decision to dismiss the government, the fact that he had spoken to the, the leader of the opposition, Malcolm Fraser, beforehand. None of these things were known to us for the first two decades at least, and in Mason's case for 37 years, uh, after the dismissal. So the history's been uh, a very distorted one, and what has been critical to fully understanding the dismissal of the Whitlam government in, in historical terms has been access to original documents. So clearly access to these most important historical documents, the royal letters, if you like, between Kerr and the Queen, was going to be a massive uh, addition to our historical knowledge. And so I felt, as I said, both as a historian and as an Australian, uh, I was greatly affronted that we couldn't know this significant part of our history. A, a portion of our history was closed off to us simply because it consisted of correspondence with the palace and that seemed to me to be terribly wrong. So, Jenny, you did over the years then receive some legal advice and in December 2015 you, asked, you wrote to archives and you asked them to review their decision and they declined. So you then at that stage had legal advice that you could challenge the archives' decision to deny you access in the federal court but what was the personal risk to you of bringing federal court proceedings of that nature? Oh, the personal risk of any federal court action is enormous unless you're, uh, you know, able to sustain with really deep pockets what's uh, very clearly an immense uh, financial risk. There's, of course, a, a, an element of, um, 
of, of uh, not risk so much as a commitment and uh, recognition that this could be a very long journey that is another type of, I suppose, another type of pressure that you need to assess. And it's partly why I decided to write the book. I thought it was really important that what was a unique set of circumstances was documented because it's very unusual to be able to take a case that is entirely pro bono as this was to argue for the release of documents uh, uh, through the courts uh, in the way that this case came about, fully crowdfunded, fully supported externally and to succeed. And I thought it was an important process as much as anything else that uh, uh, that, that bore retelling in this way. But it was also very serendipitous. I happened to read after the dismissal dossier came out and I'd argued in that book very strongly that these letters ought to be released. So we had a final piece of the puzzle, if you like, about the dismissal released to us and to history. And I read a wonderful short article that uh, Sydney barrister Tom Brennan had on his uh, on his blog saying Austra- it was headed Australia owns its history. <laughs> and he was arguing legally very strongly that the palace letters should come under the Archives Act and should be released after 30 years, as I had long argued. Um, I was so taken by this because it's what I'd been arguing politically for a long time that I I simply sent him an email and said, I, I agree totally, I've been saying much the same thing and it's, you know, I was just so pleased to see a legal argument putting this forward. And out of that, we decided to meet. He read my book, The Dismissal Dossier, uh, and it really went from there. So it was a confluence. It was, in that sense, it was not something I was looking for. But when it came about, I realised what a unique opportunity this was. How often can you challenge royal secrecy? It, it's next to impossible for the simple reason that you cannot get the documents because they're secret. So there's a circularity. You can never hope to gain the evidence to show that they should not be secret because they actually are are in the domain of public interest uh, matters because you can't get any of the materials that you're looking for and you don't really know what you're looking for. But thanks to Kerr's papers, I had found a mass of material that I'd already used in my publications Uh, Tom Brennan asked me to put that together in a way that was the strongest possible set of documents as to why these should be seen as Commonwealth records and should be released, Uh, and I did that drawing on that research, and it went from there. So, Jenny, Tom Brennan was the junior barrister. He brought in the senior counsel. Who was that? Yes, we had Anthony Whitlam, QC, uh, as our uh, uh, lead barrister at the Federal Court and Anthony, of course, is Gough Whitlam's eldest son and that was a marvellous circularity in many circularities in this case. It was quite an extraordinary experience and I think an extraordinary experience for him as well. Um, Was he excited to be asked to to take the case? Look, he was. He, he, He... took it as he would have taken any other case. He assessed it always very dispassionately and I was immensely grateful for that because, you know, if anything, you need to make sure in the process of risk, um, which is inevitable, that you do not rush headlong into things that could lead you into a very difficult end point. And I was always very conscious of that. The legal team advised me most carefully and cautiously and never... Uh, uh, held back on making that very clear that I had some very difficult decisions to make Um, and we worked together so that I was always protected in every way I could if it was possible to get a cost order from the court of course that's what I did at every point an advanced cost order that would limit the cap on uh, 
uh, on adverse costs that I might face if I lost the case. So I could never have gone ahead with it otherwise and certainly never without the pro bono legal support. But it was a very unusual experience for me to hear Anthony Whitlam argue, who often sounded so much like his father in a very in, in terms of his, his resonance as a speaker um, and was very measured and a, a, a very uh, a, a well-versed, historically well-read and erudite uh, advocate and just a marvellous person to work with. So I was enormously grateful, of course. I want to just go back for a moment to that costs issue. You've explained that your lawyers on your team worked pro bono, which was wonderful, of course, but you also had non-legal costs and more significantly, I think you've just adverted to it, but just to make it clear for the listeners, the risk that you were facing was that uh, if you were unsuccessful, not only would you have to meet your own non-legal costs, but you would have to meet the costs of National Archives. And we're going to come to talk later about just the magnitude of what those costs, I think they got up ultimately to close to a million if I'm, if I'm not wrong. Their, their own cost are a million. But yeah, so that was the risk you were facing. Not, yes. you know, it was yes. good that you had didn't have to pay your own legal costs, yes. you had pro bono, but the risk you were facing was that if you lost, you would have to pay the, ad, the costs of the, the, of the archive. How did you raise the money? You talked a little bit about crowdfunding. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that and how that worked? Yes, because of the, both the non-legal costs, but as you say, the risk of an adverse cost order, um, I which would mean I would have to pay a certain amount of fees. I, 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 we had that capped at every point, so it was never the total amount of fees. I could not have gone ahead if it had been that risk. Um, I set up a crowdfunding campaign alongside uh, running the case itself, and that was called Release the Palace Letters, uh, and it was a, a, a really successful crowdfunding campaign. We had a limit on how much we needed to raise. Uh, I'd never actually done, again, this is a bit of a, it, it, an example of how I suppose to mount a, a crowdfunded legal challenge as well. It's, I mean, um, it was quintessential public interest litigation. It was totally public interest, but nevertheless, because it was public interest around issues of accountability and transparency and access to documents, that that wasn't the sort of case that was uh, normally granted public interest recognition in terms of litigation funders and so on. So that avenue was not one that was available to me. Uh, that's more usually around issues, for example, around refugee law or matters of um, Indigenous rights and so on, areas where it's it's already a recognised part of court proceedings. Um, but access to documents and transparency has not, until fairly recently, I think, become a part of that broader brief and understanding. Um, but the crowdfunding campaign was marvellous and an extraordinary experience in itself. Um, it did bring high profile uh, uh, to the case. But what I recognised very early on is that both these aspects needed to have media interest to, to work. And so I, I had a wonderful um, media liaison person, Terry King, the, the entire way along, and, and she's a marvellous person working with projects who worked with me from the beginning. I knew Terry from book pub publishing. And, 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 and I think if we hadn't had every single one of those aspects together so that we gained media coverage and we actually had a major 7.30 story uh, on the ABC the day the case was lodged in the federal court um, uh, and, and we launched the Chuffed uh, uh, crowdfunding campaign and released the Palace Letters that very same day and those two things worked hand in glove. So every time I had media coverage, I'd get more um, campaigning done through the crowdfunding campaign. And those things work marvellously together. But 
I was really pleasantly surprised just how much public interest there was in the case. There was an enormous amount of interest. And from the very first court hearing, I was shocked to see throngs of journalists coming in every morning um, to listen. And it was marvellous because it did show that there were two things. There was this abiding interest in the dismissal of the Whitlam government, I think because people knew there was always more, more of that story to tell. And secondly, regardless of what people felt about the dismissal, people felt appalled that the Queen had placed an embargo over our own historical documents held in our national archives. So there was a real sense that this was not something the Queen should be preventing us from seeing, and yet she was. So when you began the proceedings in October 2016, and as I understand, you had a two-pronged legal argument. So it was a very strong legal argument to start with. You said that you you should get access to the originals because they were Commonwealth records and, and they fell under the Archives Act. And alternatively, or as well, you should get access to the copies under the instrument of deposit in 2004. But something surprising happened early in the proceedings. In 2017, the archives filed an explosive new affidavit from Sir John Kerr's stepdaughter, Stephanie Bashford. Now, she was the one that had lodged the copy file with the instrument of deposit, which had said that there was to be open access. What did she now say in this new affidavit that was filed in 2017? Yes, we'd, if I just take it back one step, we had begun the case uh, not, not yet having been fully uh, informed by the archives why they had withheld the copy file from us when our understanding was that they should have been released after 30 years. Um, uh, very soon after the case began, they released that instrument of deposit and it showed very clearly that, in fact, that there was no exception to that 30-year opening for the copy file, that what I had been previously told, that they were that the letters came under a special condition under that uh, instrument of deposit, in fact, was not correct. We asked for and had released to us a copy of that instrument of deposit and it showed very clearly that there was no such exemption for the letters in the, the copy files of the letters. So it's rather complicated, but the copy mm. file we knew by the time we began the court case now simply had to be released to us. They mm. should have been released to me in 2011 when I first asked for them. They should have been released to me in 2015. We were not shown the actual instrument of deposit until we began legal proceedings. And once we did, we realised why they'd refused to release the instrument of deposit to me previously, because it showed that the copies of the palace letters should have been released to me in full. So as we entered the courtroom, uh, as I say in the book, Tom Brennan turned to me and said, well, you've just won this case because, you know, the copy file now is going to have to be released. To our absolute shock, within a couple of weeks of that, um, we received an affidavit from uh, David Fricker, the Director General of the National Archives of Australia, and within that it contained new instrument of deposit, uh, newly minted only days earlier from Sir John Kerr's uh, second wife's daughter, Stephanie Bashford, and countersigned by somebody within the National Archives, which gave a new instrument of deposit, which now locked up the copies of the palace letters on the same terms as the letters themselves. And there was nothing you could do about that, was there, that she was in as the depositor, she, once you discovered she was the original depositor in 2004, she had a right, if she wanted to, to change the terms of the deposit, and she did that. And that really then stymied your case in relation to the copies, and it meant that you had to run the whole of your case on the originals. A absolutely. Look, it knocked out that single decision, and I must admit as a non-lawyer I was absolutely 
shocked that this could be done, that a change to a critical document could be made while the case was already, as they say, on foot. The case was in train. Uh, we were before the court already. Critical to that case was the instrument of deposit over the copy file and, indeed, the instrument deposit over the originals. Um, both had different terms and yet one of those documents was changed while we were in the middle of the federal court hearing. I, I was shocked that that could even be done. Um, uh, well, you and, weren't the only one that was shocked. Your legal counsel was shocked oh, as well. Oh, Andy Whitlam was absolutely shocked. Uh, they all were. Uh, uh, however, as you say, since since that Stephanie Bash, Bash was the depositor um, of the personal files, uh, 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 that was allowed to stand, that she'd made this change, and it was a very poor thing for the National Archives to be involved in. And, of course, it, it, it in one swoop, it meant that half our case the case surrounding the copy file was knocked out. We could no longer pursue it. Those, those documents had now been closed, not only to me, but to all Australians and to our history by that simple change made to the instrument deposit while the court case was on. So we had a very, very difficult decision given that the chances of success now were, had been uh, uh, slashed from an almost certain victory <laughs> as we were facing initially to now a much more difficult argument revolving around the original letters between Kerr and the Queen and only the original letters. So we were reduced to arguing solely that these were not personal, as the archives claim, but that they were what's called Commonwealth records or official letters between the two people at the apex of the constitutional monarch, the monarchy, the Queen and the Governor-General, her representative. And we argued very strongly, obviously, that they were uh, Commonwealth records, official documents. And that the critical sort of component of that argument that they were Commonwealth records was that they were the property of the Commonwealth. And the archives' response was, no, they're not. These are personal records. So that was the critical fight between you. That was, that was what it was reduced to. There's something I want to ask you about that I think you've touched on before, but I'd like you just to explain it to us. Could you just tell us a little bit, Jenny, about what was the Convention of Royal Secrecy and what role did that play? The Convention of Royal Secrecy was absolutely fundamental to the archives' claim and indeed Buckingham Palace's claim and Government House claim that the letters had to remain secret. And I must admit, until the case began, I was unaware just how pervasive this claim, and it is only a claim, this purported convention, which at various points was called by the National Archives legal team a, a constitutional convention, um, which I think elevates it far too uh, far too high for what it actually is. It's a veil of secrecy over anything involving the monarchy unless the monarchy itself decides otherwise. And there was a very good example of this um, during the case itself when the National Archives legal team, which we now know was in, in discussions with regular, more than regular discussions but advisory discussions with Government House throughout and Government House, in fact, provided a submission to the Federal Court uh, and Government House in turn was uh, in communication with Buckingham Palace about the, about the case from the outset. And so we also had letters from Buckingham Palace um, very strongly saying that these letters must remain secret and pointing to this Convention of Royal Secrecy, which they say protects the dignity of the monarch and the monarchy itself. Uh, throughout not just Australia but all of the 15 Commonwealth nations that to which this applies. So, you know, quite suddenly I found my little uh, case trying to get access to letters in our own archives was seen by Buckingham Palace 
as undermining the institution of the monarchy itself. Very, very strong terms being put. And yet this is something that has always been uh, applied to all of the monarch's correspondence with governors or governors general or prime ministers throughout the Commonwealth nations and, of course, in England itself. Has anyone ever challenged it before? Not in this way. It's been impossible to challenge that notion of royal secrecy, certainly over over uh, letters between a Governor-General and the palace, because as I said previously, it's very difficult to find the evidence that you need in order to make the claim that the, uh, the, the supposed requirement of royal secrecy is not appropriate at this time. And that's because you weren't able to see the letters? Of course. Ordinarily, you're, you, it's a catch-22. You can't see the material you're seeking, therefore it's very difficult to make an argument that it ought not to be kept secret. In this case, I had found so much material referring to the palace letters and identifying some of the palace letters and quoting from some of the palace letters in Kerr's own archives. It was possible to build a very strong picture about the letters as official documents, Commonwealth records, not personal letters, um, from Kerr's own material, and that ultimately succeeded at the High Court. So I just want to say how very important that High Court decision is for the broader question of royal secrecy, which was presumed. Can we come back to that? Certainly. So in the first proceedings, which I heard before Justice John Griffiths in the Federal Court, the decision, he hands down his decision in March 2018 and you lose. How did you feel? That was a shattering experience to lose at the Federal Court. Um, I, I, I was not surprised, I must say. I had grave misgivings about our chances from several things that I detail in the book um, that disturbed me about the way in which the case progressed. So you then had the decision to make as to whether or not to appeal to the full federal court. You brought onto your team Brett Walker, a senior counsel, and you decided, again, he was acting pro bono, and you decided you would proceed, you'd appeal to the full federal court, and you lose again. Although this time you lose 2-1 with Justice Geoffrey Flick dissenting and strongly upholding your argument that these could not possibly be personal documents. They were clearly Commonwealth records. You then had to decide, having lost before the full federal court, the only legal avenue that remained to you was to seek special leave in the High Court. Was that a difficult decision to make and what were the risks there? Every single one of these decisions was difficult. None of them was more or less difficult than the other. The only way I could look at this as something that ended up being a four-year process through the courts that I never anticipated really was to take each step at a time. So every step I took the legal advice if if I could protect myself in terms of the financial risk. So if I could have what was called a cost cap at any one of those stages, that was the only way I could continue. Just explain to us what that means, Jenny. A cost cap is an agreement either with the archives itself or through the court. At the full federal court uh, on appeal, I was able to apply to the court to cap my prospective adverse costs if I lost at $30,000. You weren't nor aren't the first member of your family to be involved in a piece of historical high court um, litigation. Could you just tell us about your mother, Barbara Hocking? Yes, my mother, Barbara Hocking, was the first barrister briefed in the Marbo case. Um, she uh, uh, did a master's thesis at Monash University in law. 
um, uh, on native title in Australia uh, and, and she had long held the view that the common law could be uh, made to recognise native title as indeed it did in the Mabo case. Um, she was a, an extraordinarily strong woman, a very, very sharp, intelligent woman and a great role model for me, someone I admired enormously and I've dedicated my book to her because, you know, I feel she would have been enormously pleased with seeing uh, where this High Court decision landed uh, and, uh, yeah, she, she played a great part in my in my thinking. Mm. Um, I wondered about that, if she had, when you had to then make that decision about whether to take the proceedings to the High Court, the fact that your mother had been involved in the Mabo case, and I know sadly she didn't live to be around at the time you were making this decision, but I did wonder if that was another factor that was, was in your mind. Oh, look, I was certainly aware of that and aware of the way she had, um, you know, she'd taken risks in her own life in terms of, uh, uh, that I think so many women of her generation um, uh, uh, had to juggle this extraordinary expectation that the domestic role was still one they filled at the same time as trying to have a professional role as a, as a female barrister when there were very, very few. And I saw, you know, how much she, she worked so hard to do that. Um, and also the view she was putting legally about the nature of, um, of of native title was not something that was widely accepted. So it was an unusual view. And uh, for all of those reasons, yes, I, I could not have been um, more pleased to be in a position to uh, dedicate the, the book to her, uh, 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 which, I, which I have done. And, uh, and uh, that was a great pleasure for me to, to be able to do that. So you heard the case run in the High Court. You heard all of your arguments arguments that you'd originally, a lot of them you'd come up with, with, you'd established the evidence through your archival research and you won in the High Court 6-1. So one, one judge dissented. The High Court found 6-1 that the palace letters were Commonwealth records. They weren't personal communications as the archives had, maintain, had maintained. How did you feel about that victory? Well, as I say in the book, I was absolutely stoked. <laughs> I just felt what a marvellous decision for our history, what a marvellous decision for all of the people who had supported the case. Uh, I felt that it was such a proper and correct decision that Australia was no longer able to have its historical records withheld from us by the Queen under the Queen's embargo. It seemed to me that there was what Gough Whitlam would have called a residual colonial relic. Uh, 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 which were the, the relics of a long-gone era that were still yet to be fully severed in this country. And you might never have expected them to be in, of all places, our national archives. But this is where this sort of incomplete severance from, from, the, from the, the monarchy has really shown up, I think, most clearly. And so um, it was a, an immensely significant decision. I couldn't have been more pleased. It's not only significant for these letters which we've all focused on so much, you know, the significance of the letters. Of course, that's been remarkable. The shift in our history that's entailed um, has been really significant. They've added to it dramatically. But there's a really important part of the High Court judgment, the plurality judgment, which is the judgment of four of the judges. We had another two also in our favour. But in the plurality judgment with the Chief Justice, um, uh, there's a section in it 
that refers to the fact that this decision of the court, they are fully aware that this goes against the express wishes of the Queen, that it goes against the, ex the expectation of Government House and Buckingham Palace and makes the critical point that the statute law, Australian Archives Act, must prevail. And I thought how extraordinary that in the year 2020 we need a High Court decision that reminds us that in this area Australian law prevails over the Queen's wishes. But that's how much this notion of royal secrecy that you raised before, um, how almost reflexive and unconsidered but a matter of fact the notion of royal secrecy is in so many ways, including in the law and in the archives, and now we have overturned that. But it had clearly, that notion of royal secrecy had clearly influenced the judges below who ruled against you. That's right. They had, they had accepted that this is the, the uh, uh, expected and accepted way of doing things. The archives legal team made very strong points about, in their view, that things had simply always been done this way because that's the expectation and that's how they must continue. Um, now, our argument always was that it was a very patchy, if it was a convention, as Brett Walker, I think, said, it was a very patchy practice at best because you could you could show many instances where that, in fact, was not the case, where letters had been released if the archives decided they should. Um, some of Sir Paul Hasluck's letters for the, with the Queen, for example, had been released, uh, the previous Governor-General. And, indeed, some of these palace letters between Kerr and the Queen were released by the archives and Buckingham Palace mm. to letters when it suited them during the court case. So they themselves did not maintain what was apparently a convention when they needed to use them in, they felt, their own benefit during the court case. So it was by no means a set thing and the High Court certainly looked at other aspects of the, of the Archives Act and not just that claim of royal secrecy. So it was a wonderful moment and I think, I think it may well prove to be more significant long-term if that case is used as a precedent in other Commonwealth nations and indeed in the States and in our own archives in releasing other Governors General's records with the Queen and that would be a very good thing. So, Jenny, let's talk now about the letters themselves. You got the High Court decision in May of 2020 and you received the, the letters from the archives in July a couple of months later and I gather there were some 1,200 pages and I think, as you've mentioned, over, over 200 letters from uh, Sir John Kerr's tenure as Governor-General from 1974 to 1977. You say and you argue very strongly in the book that when you look closely at all of the relevant correspondence, in particular letters between Sir John Kerr and between the Queen's private secretary, Sir Martin Charteris, that it makes it clear that contrary to what's always been said before, the palace knew, and you say at least from September of 1975, two things. First, that Sir John Kerr was considering using the reserve powers to dismiss the Prime Minister, and second, that he had not warned the Prime Minister Gough Whitlam of that possibility. So you say that the palace letters have shattered claims of royal neutrality and non-involvement. Not everyone agrees with that interpretation of the palace letters. I'm going to come back to that. I want to ask you, first of all, what do you rely on in the letters to support your argument? Well, the letters themselves. I mean, the, the, the letters themselves show that very clearly and, um, and that's really beyond dispute. Um, the critical thing to remember is that we've always been told, and indeed it's a requirement of a constitutional monarchy, you'll find this on the Buckingham Palace website, that as a constitutional monarch, 
the Queen must remain politically neutral at all times and does not become involved in any political discussions or any political matters in a domestic political way whatsoever. Now, these letters show that that is absolutely not the case. Matters of the most intensely political nature are discussed by the Queen's Private Secretary, Sir Martin Charters, with Sir John Kerr from the very first letter. So the first requirement of political neutrality and non-involvement in political matters is clear from the very outset of the letters that this is not being maintained. Um, There's even a letter in which, uh, relating to the September 1975 discussion with Prince Charles, um, uh, 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 Charteris actually gives the Queen's view, political view, of the possibility of Kerr's recall as Governor-General, that is, if Whitlam, as Prime Minister, did what is only a prime ministerial decision to make and has been since the constitutional, um, uh, sorry, the Imperial Conferences of 1926 and 1930, and that is to make a decision about the recall or otherwise of a Governor-General. And if Whitlam decided to recall Kerr, Sir Martin Charteris writes to Kerr and says, if Whitlam decided to recall you, the Queen would take most unkindly to it, but in the end, as a constitutional one, actually would have to take the advice per Prime Minister. Now, that is making a political comment on a decision of the Prime Minister of the day, Gough Whitlam, over a matter that they should not have been discussing in the first place. And that's something that was set by the Imperial Conference of 1930, is that a decision on the question of the tenure of a Governor-General is to be discussed only between a Prime Minister and the, the monarch, and that the monarch acts on the advice only of the Prime Minister. So for them to even be discussing Kerr's possible tenure or questions about his tenure with Kerr himself is already improper, much less for them to pass a view on the possibility of Whitlam exercising what is entirely his prime ministerial right to advise the palace on that very question. So these are really troubling letters that show the palace involved in matters they should not have been involved in. But in terms of the dismissal, there is no question that they were aware that Kerr is considering dismissing the government from as early as September 1975 because he raises that prospect with them and they comment back on it in that letter and in other letters. They have a discussion about the reserve powers in October 1975 and it is this discussion where the letters are, in my view, at their most egregious, their most improper and their most advisory and they advise Kerr against the clear advice he is getting from the government and from the Solicitor-General and the Attorney-General. Yes, so he got advice from Kep Enderby, who was the Attorney-General, and Sir Maurice Byers, who was the Solicitor-General. Gough Whitlam asked them to provide that advice and they did provide advice to Sir John Kerr that the reserve powers didn't exist or that certainly he didn't have the power to dismiss a Prime Minister. And this whole issue of whether or not reserve powers existed was a contentious one. And you point in particular, I think, to a letter dated the 4th of November in which Sir Martin Charteris confirms to Sir John Kerr that the reserve powers do exist. Now, that's a legal question on which Sir John Kerr had received advice to the contrary from the leading law officers of the Commonwealth. So that's another letter you point to, as I understand it, to say that this was where Charteris, the private secretary to the Queen, was clearly giving advice about something that it was improper as well as well outside his area of expertise. Well, Sir Martin Charteris wasn't even a lawyer. No. And, and, and apart from the fact that as the Queen's private secretary 
as the monarch must remain politically neutral at all times, these were simply matters they should never have been discussing. I mean, this is the appalling nature of these letters. Those who want to say there's nothing in the letters uh, are, are simply avoiding the letters and the nature of the letters that show otherwise. And there's critical exchanges during October and November in particular Kerr lets Charteris know that he is waiting to receive the formal advice of the Solicitor-General and the Attorney-General, the, the, the first and second law officers in the country, and that that advice is being given to, to him following a request from the Prime Minister. Now, Charteris is aware of that. Kerr indicates to, to Charteris that he fully expects that the Crown Law Officers will say to him that either the, the, the reserve powers do not exist or if they do exist, they are not applicable at this point, which is precisely what they do advise. Kerr later tried to say, well, this is only draft advice. It didn't really, it's sort of as if it didn't really count because it was still waiting for um, uh, buyers to re-sign it after Kep Enderby had handed it to Kerr and had made some minor minor corrections to it, not to any matter of substance. And as, as Kep Enderby said in an interview after the dismissal, he said, the Governor-General had our clear advice. The advice was that the reserve powers were not applicable at that time. And in fact, Kep Enderby himself argued very strongly to Kerr that the reserve powers do not exist. And that was the formal advice of the Attorney-General um, on, on, on the 6th of November. Um, so Charteris is already aware that that's what's, what Kerr is expecting 10 days earlier when he first writes to him about that advice. And Charteris nevertheless writes to Kerr and gives his own strong comment and says the reserve powers do exist, that you have the power is known. And so I asked the question, to whom was it known? It was not known to the Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, who believed that the reserve powers were no longer relevant in that situation. It was not known to the Attorney General, the Solicitor General, who advised that it was not relevant in that situation. The only people Charters is actually referring to there is the palace. The palace was of the view that they existed and that Kerr could use them. And so this is a critical letter. It is impossible to say, knowing these letters, that the palace was not involved in Kerr's decision. Of course it was, because Kerr had all of these discussions in order to make a decision about whether to exercise the reserve powers or not. To continue to claim that the palace played no role is simply to misunderstand the nature of that role. The nature of the role was in contributing to Kerr's decision to dismiss the government. Kerr himself, elsewhere in his papers, has a list of matters uh, under the heading of notes uh, on dismissal. And, and, and in that list, at, at point number five, is what he, what he writes as Charteris' advice to me on dismissal. He has already indicated that he considers what he discussed with Charteris to be advice on dismissal. That much is clear. It's beyond any question. I mean, others might want to make different arguments about the palace letters, but it is impossible to say that they did not play a role in Kerr's decision. I have to ask you one final question, Jenny. You and a number of other commentators have argued that as a result of the release of the Palace Letters, Australia's case for becoming a republic is now even stronger than it was before. So what I wondered was, has the release of the letters, I know it only happened in July of this year, um, has it stimulated more debate about Australia becoming a republic and do you think that it will? I should say up front that I'm a member of the Australian Republic Movement. I'm on the National Committee and I'm also on the Executive and certainly the release of the letters and, and the surrounding discussion has played a very big part in what's been a real surge in membership this year. I can say that 
because on a, on a year when we were anticipating because of COVID and lockdown and so on, that we would struggle with membership. In fact, it's gone up nearly 20% this year. And I can tell you from the reception to the book, and I've had many, many people, the most marvellous reception to the book, just randomly writing to me, and I'm always so grateful. But many of them say, look, before I felt that in terms of a republic, there was, you know, the old sort of view, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I now think there is something wrong that needs fixing and your book has helped me see why. So to some extent that was an unanticipated outcome of the book. But what I have been really pleased with has been the sense that the book has played almost as a political thriller to people. That's been a comment back. That's how it reads. That's how it reads. I really, really enjoy hearing that because I worked hard at making that sense of drama come through. It was unusual for me to write in the first person and that was the way I got my voice was to put it as a thriller, that it was going through the courtroom but also through a political process and understanding. But out of that for people comes a sense that, look, we can't have a situation where the Queen can have this sort of control over our history, over our documents, because of a lingering notion of royal secrecy. And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me and I think a little bit concerning and disturbing is that the palace did not issue a statement on the day of the High Court decision or soon after the High Court decision. However, when the letters were released, they again restated what they've been saying for 45 years that, oh, this shows that we had nothing to do with anything. You know, our discussions with Kerr were really presumably just about how are the corgis and how are you race horses when we know they're vastly different. But they also said that they continue to believe that correspondence between the monarch and the Governor-General were private and personal. Now, our High Court has just found otherwise in a landmark decision, a 6-1 landmark decision, and not only does the palace not acknowledge that, they simply act as though that did not happen. And I think that should open everybody up, everybody's eyes to the fact that their power continues, that their capacity to control through royal secrecy aspects of our records will continue, and that it's just one of the sort of residual notions of, um, of, of, of monarchy that we really need to to sever and to stand on our own two feet and to have an Australian head of state. Jenny Hocking, thank you so much for speaking to me today on Books, Books, Books. Congratulations on your book. You and your mother have both played um, extremely important roles in two landmark high court cases um, and two landmark really historical events for Australia. So congratulations and thank you for speaking to me today. Thank you very much for having me, Nicole, and thank you very much for also mentioning my mother and her role because uh, she's been a wonderful, a wonderful role model for me and I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.